0: Give honor to God and all the saints, thanking God for bringing us through another week, thanking God for his goodness and his greatness, all he's done, all he's going to do, and uh, just giving God all the praise for allowing us to be in the land of the living another day, despite this targeted individual program. Tonight's prayer is based on a prayer for all treasured individuals. Its title is, we must win this battle. We must win this battle. This is a spiritual battle and we decree and declare in the name of Jesus Christ, that no weapon formed against us shall prosper and that we will win this battle. That this battle will be won on behalf of humanity, that eugenics will be wiped off of this earth That unregulated, non-prosecuted human research experimentation will be stopped. That targeting of innocent people, babies, children, seniors, adults, that that will be exposed and stopped. And this program will never be replicated again. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, would you like to pray tranquility?
1: Amen. hmm Sorry about that. I wasn't quite ready, but I I'm I'm getting there. I apologize.
0: No problem. Guess, you know, usually I'll... I pray much longer, but um I'm gonna read a prayer for the PI community and say some little you know, I'll get a scripture read and put some prayers down. And also, yes, well, I'll say too for tonight. I am going to play the uh, presidential candidate uh, tape for Robert F. Kennedy, uh, one of the uh, Kennedys. He's running for president. I don't know why this is not being exposed more, but... Excuse me, this is his introduction, intro, introductory tape, and I'd like to listen to it. I'll play that after the prayer. And, um, right. you know, I hope
2: people
0: <clears throat> give any comments they may have on that, uh, that tape. Okay, so we'll go right into all prayer, right. then I'll, I'll read the scripture, and we'll go right into We Must Win This Battle. Okay, all right. tranquil. Sounds good.
1: Mm-hmm. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come tonight rejoicing in your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. We thank you for allowing us to be here one more time to praise you. Bless us in all our daily endeavors, and may they be the ones that you want us to do. Bless us and keep us in this time of worship. Thank you for my sister, Miriam, and for all the Prayer warrior me- prayer Warriors members. God, bless us and keep us all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Uh, The foundational scriptures tonight, we must win this battle, are Exodus 14, 15, 23, 2 Chronicles 20, uh, 15 to 17, and 32, 8. Would you like to read any? uh, Tranquility? Are you able to?
1: No, I'm going to listen if that's okay.
0: Okay, for the scriptures reading, I'll, I'll do Exodus uh, 14 uh, Exodus 14:14 14, 14, and 15:3. let's see. Exodus 14 14 says, "The Lord will fight for you. you need only to be still. Hmm. Wow. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Amen. That's Exodus 14, 14. And Exodus, uh, the next foundational scripture is Exodus 15, verse 3. And verse 3 says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. If he did it for them, he can do it for us. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand shattered the enemy. Amen. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like a stubble, like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you, God, you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, in working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed in your strength. You will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip of the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. And we decree and declare that this will happen to every eugenicist killing innocent people on this earth right now. We plead the blood of Jesus over this scripture. We stand on God's word that by the power of his mighty arm that all these enemies will be stoned until your people pass by lord until the people you brought pass by you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance the place lord you made for your dwelling the sanctuary lord your hands established the lord reigns forever and ever amen the lord reigns forever and ever okay that's uh ephesians 15 it was 15 3 to 18. And um, just one more. Uh, no, that was, ex- excuse me, Exodus. Exodus, now 27, verse 2. The topic tonight is we must win this battle. So Exodus 27, verse 2 says... Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns in the altar are one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze its pots to remove the ashes and shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire plants. Exodus. Oh, no, it was Exodus 23, verse 27. I knew that wasn't on the topic. Uh-huh. Exodus 23. 27. Okay, I did it wrong. I did Exodus 27. Exodus 23, verse 27. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation, every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send a hornet ahead of you to drive the enemies out. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out for you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out for you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Amen. Our topic tonight we must win this battle. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for being our God, our Father, and our friend. Oh God, our Father, thank you for the privilege to know you and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh God, our Father, thank you for always being there for us and with us. Oh God, our Father, thank you for the great and mighty things that you are doing, that you have done, and that you will continue to do in our lives. Oh God, our Father, thank you for your provisions and protection over over each and every one of us, each and every one of our treasured individuals and our bloodlines. Oh God, our Father, thank you for always answering prayers. We confess sins before you today, dear God, and we ask you, God, on the basis of your grace and mercy, forgive us. In the name of Jesus Christ, wash us clean today, dear God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us be the people you created us to be, dear God. God, we cover ourselves with the blood of Jesus Christ. We cover our families, our bloodlines, each and every person in our bloodline. We cover them with the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask you, God, for uh, protection over each and every one of them. We ask you, God, for protection over all treasured individuals. We ask you, Heavenly Father, to give treasured individuals the strength to keep praying. To stand on God's word, that he can, he will, he's the God of miracles, that he will destroy this program, that we must win this battle. And we must win this battle on behalf of Jesus Christ, on behalf of the most high God, not on behalf of what we want, on behalf of humanity becoming the way God created this earth to be. Our prayers today will not go in vain. Our prayers will produce the desired results in the name of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, equip each treasured individual with the whole armor of God. Draw the bloodline around each and every TI and their households. Heavenly Father, we claim back every legal right, every legal ground the enemy thought he claimed over our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ. We render useless and ineffective every strategy of the enemy using against us in the name of Jesus Christ. We render useless and effective every weapon of the enemy fashioned against us in the name of Jesus Christ. We render useless and ineffective every weapon of the enemy, every weapon the enemy fashioned against our destinies in the name of Jesus Christ. We decree and declare that we will meet the destiny that God has for us, We will win this battle. We render useless and ineffective every weapon of the enemy fashioned against our finances in the name of Jesus Christ. We render useless and ineffective every weapon of the enemy fashioned against our future marriages in the name of Jesus Christ. We render useless and ineffective every weapon of the enemy fashioned against our health in the name of Jesus Christ. We render useless and ineffective every weapon of the enemy fashioned against our power to produce in the name of Jesus Christ. We render useless and ineffective every weapon of the enemy fashioned against our children, our nephews, our nieces, in the name of Jesus Christ. Our families. Every battle rising against us from the enemy. Oh God, Jehovah Nisi, Fight and destroy them. Every battle rising against us from any ancestral curses, oh God, Jehovah, Nisi, fight and destroy every curse. Every battle rising against us from anybody's house, from the enemy's camp, oh God, Jehovah, Nisi, destroy it. Every battle rising against us from the eugenists plotting and planning, Heavenly Father. Oh God, Jehovah Nisi, destroy them. Fight and destroy them in the name of Jesus Christ. Every battle trying to come up against our bloodlines, oh God, Jehovah Nisi, fight and destroy the enemy. Every battle rising against our progress, oh God, Jehovah Nisi, fight and destroy them. We claim victory over every battle of life in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is our commander in chief, we will not lose any battle. Because Jesus is our commander-in-chief, we will win the battle over depression, over oppression. Because Jesus is our commander-in-chief, we will win the battle over poverty and lack. Because Jesus is our commander-in-chief that leads us straight to the Most High God, we will win this battle over sickness, eugenics, infirmity. Every of the enemy must go back to the sender in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is our commander-in-chief, because he is the blood, because of his blood, we will win the battle over any type of barrenness and loneliness these demons have planned. That demon spirit of isolation, we rebuke it because Jesus is our commander-in-chief that lines us up to the Most High God. We will win the battle over every attack of the enemy. Because Jesus is our commander in chief, we will win the battle over stagnation and any plotted backwardness the demons are planning. Because Jesus is our commander in chief, we will win every battle attacking us to take our trying to take our confidence, our faith. We stand on it. Thank you, God, for that gift. Because Jesus is our commander in chief, we will win every battle attacking our spiritual lives. Because Jesus already died on the cross. That victory was won. That he conquered the devil. He conquered every plot and plan. We stand on that bloodshed. That we thank you, God, that we can go to you through that bloodshed. We can plead the blood of Jesus to break up the plans of the enemy. Heavenly Father, we apply the blood of Jesus Christ against every sickness In every T.I., every treasured individual's body, we apply the blood of Jesus against every devourer trying to attack treasured individual's finances. We apply the blood of Jesus to remove every shame and reproach. We apply the blood of Jesus to erase every mark of the enemy upon our lives, every plot and plan of the enemy, because we must win this battle. Heavenly Father, we come to you in fellowship, Heavenly Father, and we make these requests and needs known unto you, dear God. God, we know that our prayers cannot be hindered or delayed because we know who we are. We're children of the Most High God. We walk in faith. We walk in authority. We live a life according to your will, Heavenly Father, And we stand on your word in Luke 9-1 that tells us that power and authority has been given to us according to the word of God. As we come today, God, and we have prayed, we ask you, God, we know that you hear our prayers. God, we ask you to open up the fountain of prayer and make our prayers come into fruition. Break up the plans of the enemy. God, treasured individuals who are suffering, dear God, stop the suffering. We ask you, God. Let them know that you have the power. Let them know to pray, dear God, to put you first and foremost in their lives. Heavenly Father, we come against every prince of Persia that wants to hinder our prayers. We arrest every demon force trying to hinder our prayers by the blood of Jesus Christ. We, Heavenly Father, we come against principalities and powers that wrestle with us in our prayers. We arrest them today by the power in the name of Jesus Christ, and we bind and cast them down into the pit of hell. We decree and declare that this spiritual battle we will win, that the blood of Jesus will guide us, Heavenly Father. The blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross will rebuke every satanic covenant, every satanic curse, spell, Whatever they put across this nation, we plead the blood of Jesus to break it up. God, we come before you with our elections that are up up that are coming. God, all election fraud planning, uh vipering, planning to overtake the uh the votes through fraud and and tampering with the the electoral votes and the computers. We come against it in the name of Jesus. We call exposure to it. God we arrest all the powers of the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ and we bind and cast them down to the pit of hell where they belong we come against the enemy's plot to inflict weakness weariness sleep deprivation on us today we rebuke it by the power in the name of Jesus Christ we bind and cast demons back to the pit of hell out of our lives we come against that wandering spirit and distractions. We arrest them today by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ, and we bind them up and cast them out. Today, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the anointing to pray and get results. We thank you, God, that our prayers cannot be hindered nor delayed because Jesus is our Lord. And we pray today and get the, as we pray today, we will get the desired results, and that is for the targeted individual program, this assassination program, to be exposed and destroyed and to never resurrect again, that a commission will be designed, that God will put a righteous person in the presidential office, that we will have a working Department of Justice, that the crimes and assassinations created by these eugenicists will be prosecuted, that hospitals will no longer be used to kill innocent people. We come against this stuff in the name of Jesus. We come against demons using humans to kill humans. We come against it in the name of Jesus, Heavenly Father. And we know that you hear our prayers because we baptize ourselves, dear God, in the fire of the Holy Ghost. God, you'll make us too hot for the enemy to handle our prayers will attract divine intervention to every situation in our lives. We decree and declare that signs and wonders will follow our prayers. Testimonies will follow our prayers. God will be given all the glory and the praise at the end of the day when this program is over. It will not be for treasured individuals to, to, to trample across this earth doing as they want but that we will be clear that who brought us through is the most high God. God, we thank you for housing. We thank you, God, for the ability to still stand in the midst of this eugenic assassination program. We thank you, God, for all you've done, all you're going to do. We thank you, God, that things may not be the way we want, but we know, Heavenly Father, that in due time, change is coming. And let us make learning lessons of all of these atrocities that may be inflicted on us. Don't let the atrocities stand there, God. Don't let them discourage us. Give us the strength to keep seeking out spiritual growth. To have a thirst and yearning for the word of God. Let us focus on you, God, being the God of miracles. The God with all power. The God above all, God. That you can change things in a matter of a minute. Direct the heavenly father. Lead us, guide us, use us to help get this sick program, this eugenics program, off this earth. God, I give you the praise and the glory, and I cover the prayers tonight in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I stand on your word. Your word says, "Acts, and ye shall receive; seek, and ye shall find." Your word says to decree a thing and it shall be established. As we've spoken in prayer, our prayers shall produce desired miracles. Our prayers shall produce desired testimonies in the name of Jesus Christ. We bind and rebuke territorial spirits and powers that they cannot hinder our prayer. Not even sin and flesh. Sin and flesh cannot hinder our prayers. It is done. Our prayers are sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our prayers are delivered in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. God, we believe that we must win this battle and that we will win this battle. We don't know how or when, but we're depending on you, God, to direct us. Let us keep strong relationship with you, God. Let T.I.'s be stronger than they've ever been, dear God. Let them know. Let them understand that the devil's trying to discourage them. We bind up any treasured individual trying to pull down or discredit any person that's walking with God, that's trying their best to just make it through this program. We bind and rebuke discrediting spirits. We bind and rebuke anybody. That's trying to pull anybody further down. We come against the replication of the TI program in the TI community. God, we praise you. God, we exalt you. We thank you, God, for the great miracles you have. God, I pray for Tranquility's grandfather that he may have a you know, great recovery and that he's doing good. I pray for Charisse's rally that it can be an awesome rally, a rally of inspiration a rally committed to serving God, a rally committed to bringing uh, TIs to another level, teachings, information that they can benefit from. God, I ask you, Lord, to send the people that she needs and not perpetrators. Heavenly Father, let that rally be successful. And we ask you, God, to cover treasured individuals as a whole. Keep them strong. Keep them standing on God's word. And those that are discouraged with God, God, do something in their lives, dear God, to make them have a change of heart. God, we praise you and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. I was on mute. Sorry.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, I'm going to, uh, you want to say any anything else? Any words of encouragement?
1: Um, God bless you, and thank you for being here tonight and for the scriptures you read and for the prayers.
0: Well, no, I didn't mean for me. I meant um, anybody downloading. Any treasured individual, any words of encouragement you wanna give them to just stand strong?
1: Um, Stay strong, basically.
0: Stand strong and know that God has the final say. Okay, so and we pray for uh, this Robert Kennedy Jr. He announces his 2024 presidential campaign. We pray for appropriate, equal media attention to this. He is an anti-vaccine, anti-eugenics person. And it is my prayer um, that he will be used to help destroy this program because he's done some serious work in the area of eugenics um okay let's take a look at his uh, presidential campaign take i don't know his wife was an actress <laughs>
2: Hear it? Can you hear it?
0: And it? it is it no. playing? Is it? Can you?
1: You didn't hear nothing. Wait. Oh, man, nothing. Start all over. Are you playing
0: it now? No, not now. I was. But let me see if I'm uh, maybe... Uh, I forgot this this computer. Uh, that's why I was getting a new one. Mm. I'm going to see if I can um, uh, share it. You can present from a different camera source. Mm-hmm. Is this coming in now? Do are, are you online?
2: It's
1: not right now. I hear it. I hear something.
3: And thank you, Dennis, and thank you, Jamel, and all the people who work so hard to make this a really great event. I wanted to do this event in Boston because this is a town that I have strong roots in. I graduated high school here, I went to college here. But more importantly, all of my Kennedy grandparents, Kennedy and Fitzgerald grandparents, landed here in 1848, fleeing British oppression and the potato famine back at home. And they arrived here from a nation where for 800 years there was legalized oppression against Irish Catholics. They had not been able to vote, exercise their franchise, it was illegal. For a Catholic to hold political office a, to come to enter a physician, a doctor or an attorney. It was my ancestors had a priest that was hanged for teaching my ancestors how to read and write, which was illegal to teach a Catholic at that point. Yeah. And they landed here and they took to the politics like a starving man to food. And I they my My grandfather, my great-grandfather, Honey Fitz, was the first ghetto Irish mayor of Boston. His daughter, Rose Kennedy, Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy, was my grandmother, and she loved this country because she understood that this country for the first time had given her people the capacity and the opportunity to participate in their own political destiny. And she loved everything. She made her children take the freedom walk here in Boston. She took them to Walden Pond on weekends. She took them to Breed's Hill and Bunker Hill and the other major battles of the revolution. She...
1: Hello?
2: Yeah, can you hear it?
1: No, I can't hear it anymore. I was hearing it.
2: But
1: I put it under sharing. It's, not sharing.
2: it's not sharing? It's not
1: sharing? It must not be. I'm not hearing it. I was hearing it a few minutes ago and then it just stopped. Now. No. You did now? um uh uh-uh. uh you did share and then you went you said you wanted to share that particular tab.
0: Yes.
1: Oh, that's weird. Nope, I'm not hearing it.
0: It says you are sharing your screen.
1: Hmm. I wonder why we can't hear it. Maybe is it mute? Do you have it muted on the YouTube thing?
0: Maybe? No, no, I, I hear it clearly.
1: No, I'm not hearing it at all. It's weird.
0: Okay. I got to start doing my, um, with, with the, with the, we got to have Prom. to
1: practice it.
0: No, I got to do it with Google Chrome. They, they sabotage this computer. And I don't know how you start hearing it and then just stop. That doesn't make sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's crazy. So you I did- was hearing it really clear.
0: Really? Let me, let me just try mm-hmm. one more time. Start sharing, share, share my screen. Let me just, yeah, just put it to the Google, Robert Cundey, share. Are you online? Can are, Did you see the video? Oh,
1: I'm not even on the computer. Oh, okay. Right. And he wrote out
3: the he corner. I hear it tomorrow. now alert the countryside, and particularly the Minutemen, that a British troop of 800 men was coming to confiscate their arsenal and their powder dump. And those men met the British Army, the largest and most Are you powerful like
2: the army, no. on the Old North hmm.
3: Bridge. I hear kind of OK. And they drove back. And they chased them in retreat, through Connacht, through Lexington, through Lincoln, through Arlington, into Cambridge, inflicting terrible casualties. Let me see, I got to speak. And that was the beginning of the American Revolution. But really, the revolution had started two mm-hmm. years before. And it started when Bridge had yeah. passed an oppressive law it's raising better. taxes on tea in New England. And the rapes was a lot. And the british crown made collusion with the british east india company Is that which the king owned shares in mm-hmm. his ministers owned shares and and most of the aristocracy owned shares it it was their proposed attack on new england merchants but exempt the british east india company from the tax so that they could undersell everybody and that they would make a profit for their shareholders so the revolution, and, the, and of course, the Americans responded, addressed as Wampanoag Indians and boarding British East India Company's ship and pumping the tea into the harbor. And that's when the British sent that troop over here to quell the rebellion. So that rebellion was in part against empire, but there's, there's a spirit of rebellion, what a fury that caught. The colonists had against the merger, corrupt merger of state and corporate power. I, uh,
2: what happened? Come your
3: day.
1: What you said, Jim? It, it cut out. It cut out. Yeah,
2: I wonder
3: why. Nothing. Going
1: going on. No, I was hearing.
3: Well, Announcing the candidacy uh, for the Democratic nomination for okay, President now the United States. mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is is now to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism on our country to commoditize our children, our Purple Mountain's majesty, to poison our, our children and our people with chemicals and pharmaceutical drugs, to strip mine our assets, to hollow out the middle class, and keep us in a constant state of war. Yep. I um, oh. want to start. I first of all, I can't understand that sign language. (laughs) I want to start by by, um, uh, by thanking my wife, Cheryl Hines. Um, I, I, I would not be here without Cheryl. And um, I cannot describe in words what she has brought to my life, um, but Mm. uh, she is the wisest person that I know. She's also one of the funniest people, and I say the American people get to know her, that they are going to be more excited about having a really funny first lady in the White House (laughs) than they are. I also want to thank all my family members who showed up today. My children, uh, Bobby, Kick, Amaryllis, Connor, Kira, Finbar, and Did I leave any out? <laughs> I told them to wear name tags, and I can't see them from here. And then my cat and a cat, so that's uh, uh, my my grandchildren Zoe and Cassius and, uh, and Bobcat, uh, my brother Douglas, my sister Courtney, um, my nephew, Bo and Bertel uh, and uh, Riley and George and uh, <laughs> Anthony Schreiber. I am so grateful for you coming here and Cotto. I said, Goddard. Okay, thank you. I'm very, very grateful all of you for coming. There are other members of my family who are not here today. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna make a confession because I know for most American families, they, they never have any differences with each other. Oh, uh, uh, When one does. when that happens in a family, it's really huge news, like everywhere. And um, But you know, I wanted to say this, but I'm very grateful that many of the families who disagree with what I'm doing today, many of the family members have taken the time to write me beautiful letters of love this week, to send me emails, to make telephone calls for me. And I, I do will or any kind of disappointment to any of them. They have different views of, of the politics in this country. My whole family, including myself, have long personal relationships with President Biden. Many of my family members are working in the administration. Uh, many of them also plain disagree with me on issues like censorship, on war, on public health, and they are entitled to their beliefs, and I respect their opinions on them. And I love them back. And my hope and it isn't too much hope that we could have the same thing for our country. We have a polarization in this country today that is so toxic. And so dangerous, and at any time since the war. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln said, Country or a nation, a house divided against South Kansas. And when I talk to both Republican friends and Democratic friends, they talk about this division in almost apocalyptical terms. Nobody can see a safe way or a good way out of it. And people prepare for kind of a dystopian future. And um, part of, the, one of the principal missions of my campaign and of my presidency is going to be to end that division. And I'm gonna to try to do that by encouraging people to talk about the values that we have in common rather than the issues that keep us apart and also also and this I think is the most important thing i'm going to do that by telling the truth to the american people
2: Let's have a piece and
3: the truth is that you that is the core. That is the core of this division, of course. And we fight each other when blacks fight whites and Republicans fight Democrats and when rural fights are urban. The people of merger corporate power sits at the top is loving the fitting between us among us so that they can strip on our country. Yeah, and the thing that keeps us, the reason truth is so important, when I was a little boy, nobody in the country would dream that our government would ever lie to the American people. In fact, and that's not a joke, nobody believed it back then. In May of 1960, that changed a little. When Gary Powers crashes U2 in Russia, and the Eisenhower administration denied the U program they didn't they didn 't know at the time that the Russians had captured Gary Powers. and when, when the Russians produced them, it was a shock to the American people that their government had lied to them,
2: yeah.
3: and then in 1970 during the Vietnam War, of course, we all began to suspect that we were being lied to And in some When the Pentagon Papers came out, really, oh, this is what they do. My father, just before he died, told me very sadly, "People in authority lie, and the government now lies to us. We all know it. We take it for granted." When my uncle left office in 19, when he died in 1963, about uh, 80 percent of Americans said they trusted their government. Today, 22 percent. trust their government, and 22% trust the press, the lowest level ever. The media is at the lowest need, because know the media lost to its own. Everybody knows that. And so, And the problem is that when the, the, the uh, when sources information that we're always used to that we need to rely on in democracy. When they start lying to us, Americans look for other sources because they know they're being lied to and they look for other sources of the truth. And when the media and the you know the corporate captive media and the corporate captive government sees other sources of truth, they have to brand those misinformation because they threaten their paradigm. They threaten that orthodoxy. And and of course, there is a lot of genuine misinformation. But as we know, a lot of misinformation is just statements that depart from government orthodoxy. So they have to either censor us, or they have to lie about what's true and what's not true. And that amplifies the polarization. It it amplifies the hatred, the fear, the insecurity, because you know you're being lied to and then you're being silenced. Censorship doesn't work from any point of view, and it's very, very very dangerous. My father, 55 years ago last month, I sat as a 14-year-old boy behind my father as he announced in the Senate caucus room in Washington, D.C. His campaign for presidency of the United States, and my father at that time was in the same, in many ways, the same position I'm in today. He was running against a president of his own party. He was running against a war. He was running against a, He was running at a time of unprecedented polarization in our country, and, and he had no chance of winning. My father, when he declared had not a single molecule in him that he believed that he could win the Democratic nomination. Why is that? He had run his brother's campaign in 1960, eight years before. But now, all the unions were against the two the United Auto Workers and Cesar his United Farmers. The, the liberal press was 100% against him from the New York Times to the Village Voice. The labor union, the uh, the big city mayors were against him, including Mayor Daley, who had played a critical role in President Kennedy's nomination. The, all the people in the, the new frontier were his closest friends, were now working for the Johnson White House. So they were against him. The only people that he had with him, even the universities were against him, because they were with McCarthy, the the, the group of Hollywood, like Glenn Wood, and I've been very close to them, very, worked very hard for my uncle in 60. Uh, we're now working for McCarthy. And my father, in the universities, my father my father used to say that the, he and McCarthy had all the A students and he had the B and C students. And, um, and so you know, all the only people we had were people. Uh, poor white people in rural areas like Appalachia, poor blacks, and uh, in the Delta and in our cities, and Watson, Harlem, and, uh, and East LA, and Indians on the Indian Reservations, and that was kind of it. That's hopelessness, this campaign read him to tell the truth to the American people. So he went, when he went to Indiana University and the medical students said to him, who's gonna pay for your healthcare program? He said, you are. And when he went to Creighton University, in it was a Catholic university in Omaha, and they asked him whether he would support their deferment, he said, no. The deferments were the reason most of them were in college, because that was the only way you could get out of Vietnam. And he said, no, and they booed him. And he said, do you think it's fair that 44% of uh, power in Vietnam are black? Do you think it's fair that we are sending black children to fight this war? Because they can't get their, their kids into college. I
2: can't hear you.
3: He said, "I can get to the college and get them out of the war if I want to." But do you think that that is consistent with your Catholic values at this university? And when he ended, they gave him a standing ovation. When he went to Watts and he talked about the importance to the Black community of abiding with the law, they applauded him. When he went to the University of Alabama, he forcibly integrated by federalizing the national guard with United States troops five years before. He talked to them about the enduring importance of civil rights. They applauded him when he went to the University of Kansas and gave a speech to twenty thousand people. And the kids in the auditorium who were all corn-fed Midwestern pro-military, pro- Vietnam, and he talked to them for an hour about his evolution on the and and the the, uh, the, the progression of the Vietnam War. And at the end of that, the applause was so thunderous that Jack Newfield was one of his reporters' whistle. sometimes times. It felt like the roof was coming off of the auditorium. The students rushed the stage. They were throwing chairs. They just wanted to hear the truth. That's it. And the day he died, he won the, they, he won the California primary urban state in this country. And the same day, the South Dakota primary, most liberal, he had succeeded in uniting America and building that bridge just by telling people the truth. It was with me. Dad died in Los Angeles. And we brought him back to uh, New York on uh, Vice President Offrey's plane on US 2. And we waked him at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And then we brought him from Penn Station in New York, Union Station in Washington, D.C. Normally, that's a two and a half hour train ride. And it took seven and a half hours because there were two million people on the tracks. And that I will never forget as a 14-year-old boy what I saw from the windows of that train that day. In all of the urban train stations in Trenton and and Philadelphia and Baltimore, there were they were crowded with black and white men singing the battle hymn of the Republic. In the countryside, there were white people in military uniforms. There were, there were blacks, there were rabbis and priests. I remember in Delaware, there were seven nuns standing in the back of a yellow pickup truck, just waving handkerchiefs at us as we passed. We saw, um, I remember a, uh, passing a Little League game where all of the kids on both sides, both teams, coaches, and all the spectators in the stand, were standing with their hands at their hearts in salute. Um, we saw Boy Scout troops saluting, military officers and personnel, hippies and tie-dye t-shirts. It went people holding up babies, mothers holding up babies, many of have them had the American flags. Many of them had signs that said goodbye, Bobby, or pray for us, Bobby. And we got to Union Station in Washington. And President Johnson met us there. And we drove my father's body up past the mall in Washington. And three months earlier, my father had communicated with Martin Luther King, and they decided to partner with Marion Wright Edelman, who was one of my father's aides. Organized they saw that the Vietnam War was destroying the war on poverty. It was sucking all the money, and Johnson essentially had the people on the war on poverty. And my father told Martin the poor are never to get rights in this country until they start politically participating. Let's do a, a poor people's campaign like we did two years before with the civil rights or five years before with the civil rights campaign. Bring them all to Washington. And Thousands of men were encamped in plastic channies on a mall, and we drove up past them. Martin had died you know, a month or a month and a half earlier. Now my father was dead. And we drove up past them. They all came to the sidewalk, and they held their hats against their chests, to salute them back their heads. As we took my father up the hill across the bridge to Arlington to bury him, under a simple stone next to his brother. And four years later, I was studying here at college American history, and I came across that, data that showed that most of those white people lined the train track and who had supported my father in the primary in 1968, four years later in 1972, they voted not for George McGovern, who was very closely aligned with my dad, but it said for George Wallace, who was a large segregationist, who was antithetical to everything my father believed in. And it occurred to me then, and it struck me many times since, that every nation, like every nation, like every individual, has a darker side and a lighter side, and that the is easiest thing for a politician to do is to is to appeal to our anger and our bigotry and our hatred and our greed and all the lower angels the darker angels of our character and at once in a while we get a political leader who tries to do significantly what to do, which is to talk to people in a way that gets them to transcend their narrow self-interest gets them to transcend their fear and their bigotry and their anger and see themselves as part of a community, sees themselves as a part of a, of a noble experience. on am the hero that we all have in each of us. And, and, and my father tried to persuade people that we have to avoid the seduction of the notion that we can advance ourselves as a people by leaving our poor the brothers and sisters behind that the only way we can get security is to get rid of our constitutional rights. And he tried to remind Americans that we each need to be a hero, and he succeeded in doing that. And his trail, unfortunately, was a cardboard. um But I, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my career and what brought me here. I started out, as Dennis mentioned, as I spent 35 years as an environmental advocate. At the beginning of my environmental career, end of 1983, the beginning of 1984, uh, a man who was a mentor of mine, offered me a job doing high-level environmental policy in Washington or New York, or another job that was kind of Uh, doing large purchases purchases of of conservation land. And I didn't want to do that kind of environmentalism. I wanted to be in trenches, working with people, and engaged in hand-to-hand combat against the big polluters. And I wanted to particularly work with people who were most harmed by environmental injury, but also were alienated or marginalized from the mainstream environmental community. My first case, an environmental lawyer was representing the NAACP in a lawsuit against Austin in New York for trying to put a waste transfer station in the oldest Black neighborhood in the Hudson Valley. And I found that lawsuit that four out of every five toxic waste dumps in our country is the black neighborhood. The highest the, the largest toxic waste dump in this country is Emile, Alabama, which is 85% black. The highest concentration of toxic waste dumps in this country is the side of Chicago. The most contaminated zip code in California is East LA. And black youth probably the largest at that time problem with black youth was that 48% of them had dangerous levels of lead in their blood. And that lead uh, dramatically reduced IQ, also causes severe behavior problems. And I recognize, you know, I spent a lot of my time over the next 30 years fighting on those kind of issues. I spent summer vacation in jail in uh, maximum security prison in Puerto Rico in 2001, because I had successfully Stop I bombing mean, probably the poorest community in our country. The people, the black and brown people, live on the island of Vieques, who are American citizens, uh, but they are not treated that way. other group that I spent my time with, the majority of my time, I wanted to work with rural Americans and working class americans and particularly hunters and fishermen the hook and bullet people who cared deeply as much as any other american about the environment and yet they felt completely alienated from the mainstream environmental community well i spent my career working for a blue collar coalition of commercial and recreational fishermen who mobilized on the hudson river in nineteen sixty six, to reclaim the river from its polluters, we have on Hudson River the oldest commercial fishery in North America. It's three hundred years old many people represent um from families that have been fishing the river continuously since Dutch colonial times. It's a traditional gear fishery. They use the same fishing methods that were taught by the Algonquin Indians to the original Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam and then passed down through the generations. One of the enclaves of the commercial fishery on the Hudson is a little village called Crotonville, New York. It's 30 miles north of New York City on the east bank of the river. And the people who lived there in 1966 were not your prototypical mainstream environmentalists. They were affluent, they were not affluent. They were the opposite of that. They were carpenters, lathers. Uh, factory workers, electricians, half the people in Grotonville made their living, or at least some part of it, fishing or grabbing the Hudson. These were people had little expectation that they'd ever see Yellowstone or Yosemite or the national parks. They didn't have the money to take their families on those kind of vacations. For them, the environment was their backyard. It was the bay, the swimming holes, the fishing holes of the Hudson. Uh, that was their livelihood. It was their recreation. It was their food. Um, and Richie Garrett, who was the first president of the Riverkeeper of the Fission Association, used to say about the Hudson, it's our Riviera, it's our Monte Carlo. Richie Garrett was a here, from Washington, New York. He used to tell his who followers, I'll be the last to let you down. And, and uh, in, my, in 1966, the oh. Central Railroad began vomiting oil from a four-and-a-half-foot pipe in the croton Rail Yard. And the oil went up the river on the tides, and it blackened the beaches, and it made the shad taste of diesel, so they couldn't be sold to the park in the market. New York City. All the people in Grotonville came together in the only public building in the town, which was the American Legion. All oh, this is a very patriotic community. Grotonville and the neighboring village of Austin had one of the highest enlistment and mortality rates during World War II, and almost all of the original Riverkeeper Board and officers and members were former Marines, they were combat veterans from World War I Korea. was a former Marine. These weren't radicals, they weren't militants. They were people whose patriotism was rooted in the bedrock of our country. But that night they started talking about violence. Because they saw something that they thought they owned, which was the abundance of these fisheries and the, the purity and richness of the Hudson River's waters. And it was being robbed from them by our core entities over whom they had no control, and been to the government agencies that are supposed to protect Americans from pollution. The Corps of Engineers, the Conservation Department, the Coast Guard, and they were given the bumps rush. Richie Garrett made more than a dozen separate visits to the Corps of Engineers office in Manhattan, begging the Corps of Colonel to do his job, shut down the Penn Central Park. And the colonel finally told them in exasperation, "These are important people. Speaking of the Penn Central board of directors, we can't treat them that way. In other words, we can't force them to comply with the law. So these, this, these agencies, these regulatory agencies, had become the pups for the industry they were supposed to be regulating. And by this evening in March of 1966." 300 men and women came together in that American Legion Hall in Crotonville, and all of them had come to the conclusion that government was involved with the polluters. And the only way they were going to reclaim the river for themselves is if they confront the polluters directly. And somebody suggested they put a match to the oil slick coming out of the Penn Central pipe and burn it up. Somebody else said they should roll a mattress up and jam it up the pipe and flood the rail yard with its own waste. Somebody else said they should float around the intake of the Indian Point power plant, which at that time was killing a million fish a day on its intake screens and taking food off their family tables. And then a guy stood up named Bob Boyle. He was a, a first lieutenant combat vet from Korea. He was also by then a women's fly fisherman, a spin fisherman. He was the outdoor editor of uh, Sports Illustrated for 70 years. Two years earlier, he'd written an article about angling in the Hudson for Sports Illustrated. And in researching it, he had come across an ancient navigational statute called the 1888 Rivers and Harbors Act. And that statute said it was illegal to pollute any waterway in the United States. You had to pay a big penalty if you got There was county provision that anybody who turned the polluter got to keep half the flight. And, uh, He had checked it out with lawyers. The law had never been enforced in 80 years, but it was still on the books. And that evening, he stood in front of this group and he said, "Uh, We shouldn't be talking about about enforcing it. And it was all that evening that they were going. Go out and track down and prosecute every polluter in the Hudson. Eighteen months later, they down the Central plate. He got to keep two thousand dollars. There was a two weeks of wild celebration in the town. They used the money that was left over to go after Tuck Tape, Standard brand, American Cyanamid, the biggest corporation in America, and winning. In nineteen seventy three, they collected the highest penalty in the United States history against a corporate polluter. They got $200,000 from Anaconda wire and cable for dumping toxins at Hastings, in New York. They used that money to build a boat. They hired a full-time riverkeeper, a former commercial fisherman, John Cronin. They hired me using bounty money as their attorney. And over the next couple of decades, we bought over 500 successful legal actions against Hudson recruiters. The Hudson River is an international model for ecosystem protection. This is a river that caught fire. It, uh, it, was, it was dead for 20 mile stretches north of New York City, south Albany, in depending on how they were pinning the G tr- trucks at Terrytown, uh, the Terrytown Gia uh, Terry plant. Uh, today, it's the richest waterway in the North Atlantic. It produces more pounds of fish per acre. Thank you. More biomass than any other be in the Atlantic Ocean North America. The, and the, 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 the miraculous resurrection of the Hudson has inspired the creation of River keeper Water Keepers. Now, 350 of them in 46 countries. were are now the biggest water protection group in the world. <laughs> One of them. But the story of the Hudson also has a sad ending because General Electric Company dumps PCBs into the Hudson to save money at its Capacitator plant. And the PCBs, although they've spent a billion dollars trying to get them, out, there's other things that nobody's ever going to pay. Uh, commercial fish are many of the these are too toxic to eat, and it's the commercial fishery has been almost altogether closed. Two thousand families that I represented now there's. Uh, probably two left, and those are families that enriched the history, the culture, the palette of New York uh, for three and a half centuries. And they're gone not because their business plan didn't work, because it did work for three and a half centuries. The thing that didn't work, free market capitalism worked perfectly for them, what didn't work was corporate crony capitalism, was the general electric company. (laughs) Better lobbyists. General Electric did not have better business plan, it just had better lobbyists. So it was able to escape the discipline of the free market, corrupt public officials, dump its PCBs in the river, put you know my fishermen out of work, and everybody in the Hudson Valley now has electric PCBs in their professional organs. Uh, and that's you know that's uh, that's what corporate crony capitalism does um one of the things that i learned from the fishermen is that there's no daylight between good environmental good environmental policy and good economic policy and here, you hear this i'm sure the trouble, um, the polluters and their indenture service in on capitol hill and you know and elsewhere that we have to uh that uh, we have to choose between economic prosperity and environmental protection and that's a false choice, In 100% of the situation. Good environmental policy is identical to good economic policy. If if, if we want to measure our economy, this is how we ought to this is how it produces jobs, editing the jobs over the generations, and how it reserves the value of the assets of our community. If, on the other hand, we want to do what the big polluters are urging us to do, which is to treat the planet as if it were a business of liquidation, convert our natural resources to cash as quickly as possible, have a few years of illusion based priority. We can generate an instantaneous cash flow and the illusion of a sky and we can make a few people billionaires by impoverishing the rest of us. But our children are gonna pay for our joy, right? And they're gonna pay for it with denuded landscapes, poor health, huge cleanup costs that are gonna amplify their time and they'll never it back. environmental injury is a deficit spending. It's a way of loading the cost of our generations' prosperity onto the backs of our children. <laughs> and- one thing that I've done over the past 30 years as an environmental advocate is to constantly go around and confront uh, this argument that an investment in our environment is a diminishment of our nation's wealth. It doesn't diminish our wealth. It's an investment in infrastructure, the same as investing in telecommunications or road construction. It's an investment that we have to make if we're going to ensure the economic vitality of our generation and future generations. And by the way, we're not protecting the environment just for the sake of the fish and the birds. We're protecting it for our own sake, because those things enrich us. They enrich us economically, spiritually, culturally, and all these other ways. Um, If we want to meet our obligation as a generation, as a civilization, as a nation, which is to create communities for our children, provide them with the same opportunities for dignity and rich and prosperity and good health as the communities that our parents gave us. We've got to start by protecting our environmental infrastructure the air we breathe, the water we drink, the wildlife, the fisheries, the plants, those things that are not reducible to private property, but by their nature, are the property of all of us, the commons, the commonwealth, the public trust assets, uh, the landscapes, the waterways that connect us to the 10,000 years of human beings lived before there were laptops, and ultimately connect us to God. And... God God talks to human beings through many factors, through each other, through wise religion, through the great books of those religions, through wise people, through art and music and uh, literature and poetry. But nowhere was such detail and grace and color and joy as through creation. When we, when we destroy a species, when we destroy a special place, we're diminishing our capacity to sense the divine, understand who God is and what our own potential is. Brother Martin once told me that the definition of sin is an injury to another human being or to God, to our relationship with God. And when we... You know, when we eliminate, my children are going to grow up in a world where they never see the explosions of color from butterflies. You know, I saw every time I walked into my garden, as 80 or 90 percent of the butterflies are gone. The flying insects—they'll never hear the songbirds that I heard because 80 percent of them are gone. They'll never see the amphib- the, the, the the puddles that I saw. By the way, the, like cauldrons with tadpoles from, you know, from salamanders and frogs. They're not going to see that in their lifetime. They're unaware of it. And it's like God is a tapestry and he's talking to us from all of these different vectors. And we're pulling threads out of that capacity. And it is such a crime against our children. And I think... I think... We deserve a president in this country who cares about these things, and who talks about these things to the American people.
2: <laughs>
3: um, I, I want to say one other thing. You know, nature is the social safety net. When, when we had the Great Depression, 10,000 men who lost their jobs went down to the Hudson River to, to find oysters and blue crabs and search and shad and, and harring alewives and fed themselves with their family and some made money. And that was always nature's our social safety net. It's infrastructure. They can't do that if there's another Depression. You know we're relying on the government to give us money, but it's uh, that's not reliable. Nature was always reliable. You live up in a sweltering home in New York, you and and you are, are a, you have no access to beaches. You can jump on the train and go right up to Croton Point Park, and you can bathe in the river and get away from that for a day and experience nature and enrich yourself. You can't do that if the Hudson is polluted. Michael, a couple of children have asthma. One out of every four black children now in urban areas has asthma. The asthma events are triggered by bad air days, by ozone particulates. It's coming mainly from coal-burning power plants. So those plants, General Electric Company privatized the fish in the Hudson River. They privatized the river to make profits for themselves through eruption. It, those coal generators are privatizing the air in my children's lungs. And we have to understand that it is an act of theft. Pollution is a subsidy, and it's an act of theft. I want to move on to another issue that nobody's going to really want to talk about, but I need to. i got to tell you right now, I'm about halfway done with this speech. And, and this is what this is what happens when you censor somebody for 18 years. I
2: have a lot to talk. About. Have shut
3: up, that long. Now I'm gonna You're really right. let loose on for the next 18 months. They're gonna hear a lot from me. Thanks. I
2: yeah. then uh, talk about lockdowns.
3: Um, and nobody wants to talk about it. I, but, but we need to understand. Well, I grew up at that time, most of my life was at a time that economists called the Great Prosperity. It's when the American middle class between 1945 and 75 to be the biggest economic engine in the, on the face of the globe. I mean, we were the economy in the globe. We made everything and everybody us, not only for goods but for moral leadership. And we became the most powerful country in the world, unrivaled. And it was because and we had a stable democracy with institutions that people trusted, the press that told us the truth. And, um, and the destruction, of, you know, every post, it's economic and political economic rule you cannot have democracy in a society where there is high concentrations of wealth and widespread poverty you need a middle class or you don't get democracy and uh, that, that, is that is a law you cannot with that you cannot do it unless you have a big middle class and we add that Uh, But since the early 1980s, there's been a systematic attack on our middle class. And the coup de grace was a lockdown. Lockdown was the biggest shift in wealth in in history. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. And I blame President Trump for the lockdown. Uh, A lot of people will say, a lot of people say, and President Trump gets blamed for a lot of things that he didn't do. And he gets blamed for some things that he did do. But the worst thing that he did to this country, to our civil rights, to our economy, middle class in this country was lockdown. President Trump, in fairness, at this point, will tell people, well, the lockdown wasn't my idea. It was my bureaucrats rolled me on it. I was saying we shouldn't do it. But that's not a good enough excuse. He was president of the United States. And as Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. On May 2nd, 2020, 600 doctors wrote, signed a letter to President Trump begging him not to do, allow the lockdowns. And they said, at, at that time, all of the pandemic protocols anywhere in the world, the WHO, CDC, everywhere, the European Health Agency, all says you never do mass lockdowns. It causes much worse havoc and deaths and injuries than if you do the standard protocol, which you lock down the, the sick, you protect the vulnerable, and you let everybody else go back to work. Otherwise, you are going to wreak havoc. <laughs> <And> of course, you <laughs> know. And I wrote, I wrote about it for what? the, um, you know, on Instagram. I was writing every day. I was citing these economic studies that showed every point in unemployment, employment you get 37,000 excess deaths from heart attacks, suicides you know plus imprisonment I was writing about this and they dumped me from the social they that said that's misinformation it was not but people were sad. people knew it wasn't just me and we now know of course it's true there's now study after study and any every comparison between the states, and nations that locked down, compared to those who didn't, you know, had shown the ones who locked down. The more you locked down, the worse you got. The worse COVID deaths, worse excess. We, numbers came out that Sweden was the only country in Europe that didn't lock down. It had the lowest excess deaths in Europe, which is very predictable. <laughs> if the nation, you know, the nation that led to lockdowns was us, and we had the highest body count of COVID on earth. 4.2% of the world's population. We had 16% of the COVID deaths. At some point, even the media is going to have to say, stop saying this was a success story. We... Oh, the health issues were almost dwarfed by the economic cataclysm that befell our country, yes. the uh, the IMF and Harvard study by Mary Summers, says the cost of the lockdown to the United States was trillion. $16 trillion, $16 for nothing, $16 trillion. We shifted $4 trillion from the middle class in this country to the super rich. Yep. We created 500 new billionaires. Yep. These billionaires increased wealth, according to the Oxfam study that came out three days ago, by 30%. Wow. This was a gift Overkill. to the rich. Yep. And guess what? The ones who were the, the people who got riches with the social media companies like Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft that were with President Trump's White House to censor people like me. So the, the very people who are profiting on those lockdowns were the ones who are strip mining the wealth from the middle class in this country. Amazon got to close down all of its competitors. Three point three million businesses it shut down. And I'm suing. I'm in a lawsuit involving Amazon for censoring one of my books. So they were censoring people who criticized the lockdowns while they were raking in the money from the lockdowns. And and unfortunately, unfortunately, President President Trump's White House was colluding with them. 41% of black businesses shut down, most of them permanently. Wow. I'll introduce you to something. This is Anthony Caldwell. Can you, Anthony, and just wave to people. And Anthony Caldwell, from Boston, he was a chef, a very, very successful chef in this town for 19 years. He saved every DIN event. So every penny they had to build their dream, which was that he would have his own restaurant by the time he was 50 years old. It's called 50 kitchen. It was the hottest into Worcester, which is the town that my grandfather and grandmother lived. Um, the, the returning way crowds, Boston Magazine called him a culinary genius. It was a mix of Asian fusion food with soul food. And then the lockdowns came and Anthony told me. The customers were gone. He was looking out the window, staring out all day with the chair stacked in his his dining room, and no customers. The federal government gave him $17,000. but They told him he had to spend it all within eight weeks, or he had to pay it back. He said, how do I want $17,000 with no customers? And he 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 let go seven of his servers. Finally, uh, he kept it open for a year without paying for, for, for paying himself, and then he closed it down and went bankrupt. And, and he owes two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And that story can be told thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times in black communities all over this country. <laughs> and they were a war on american children according to the Brown university study children in this country toddlers lost 22 iq points the uh, uh, a third of children are going to need throughout their their school careers are going to need remedial education children, what is cdc's response Here's CDC's response. CDC five months ago revised its milestones, so now a child no longer is expected to walk at one year. They have they walk at 18 months, and a child now does not have to have 50 words in 24 months. Is three months. So wow. instead of fixing the problem, they lowered the standard. They are trying to cover it up. Yep. And, yeah. and, if you will, the only indicia of uh, some of the time that it actually improved was that during the pandemic, child abuse dropped. It was just an artifact of day gathering. Why? Because child abuse is reported by the schools. And the schools were closed. And the, the kids were locked at home with abuse. 35% of teenagers report being abused during the lockdowns. 13% physically abused. It was also the schools were the places where people had hot lunches. Where kids stayed at home, watching screens or not, eating. We gained an average, average 29,000, and it was the, the, the obese, obesity killed you from COVID. We weren't like right. this is the inverse of what you want to do if you want to say, These public health authorities went to every black neighborhood, locked down the basketball court. So couldn't people exercise? They couldn't, they had to get out of the sunlight. If they could lock down the, the courts, they removed the basketball hoops. This was, wow. you know, they, they, and, and all of us suffered from it, all the communities, but the black communities, minority communities suffered the worst wow uh 25 uh, percent of teenagers reported going hungry uh 20 report uh, reported trying to commit suicide or had suicidal ideation nine percent tried to commit suicide suicide is now the largest cause of death among black children. Oh, wow. well, these are just some some of the horrifying data I could go on and on, but I, I'm not going to I want to talk about another issue, which is the close down of the of our 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 rights. Not only did we start censoring people at the very, very beginning, and you know Hamilton Madison Adams said we put freedom of expression in the First Amendment because all the other, all the other rights depend on that. If you give a government license to silence its critics. It now has license for any atrocity, so
2: as soon as they,
3: as soon as they knew, as soon as they knew that it was centralized, they then went after the other, the first amendment of uh, worship, they closed every church in this country without any scientific citation for a year. Without any um, uh, notice and comment rulemaking, democracy was simply abolished. They then went after freedom of assembly. They told us we had to social distance. They went after our property rights, the Fifth Amendment. They closed 3.3 million businesses with no due process, no just compensation. They got rid of Seventh Amendment jury trials. They said, they said, they said "If you're involved with the with the counter- No matter how how egregious the injury you caused, no matter how negligent you were, no matter how reckless, you cannot be sued. And here's what the Seventh Amendment says. It says, no American shall be deprived the right of a trial before a jury of his peers in case there are controversies exceeding 25 years. Well, there's no pandemic exception. And, And by the way, the framers knew all about pandemics there were two epidemics during the Revolutionary War. One, there was an epidemic, a malaria epidemic in Virginia that decimated General Washington's truth. It was a smallpox epidemic that disabled the armies of New England at the very moment they conquered Quebec and they had to withdraw. Otherwise today, Canada would be part of the United States. And and um, and by the way, we've had epidemic but between the end of the revolution and the ratification of the Constitution nine years were epidemics in every city killed tens of thousands of people cholera epidemics small huts, epidemics Philadelphia New York Austin etc malaria epidemics they knew all about them but they didn't put that in the in the Constitution the Constitution was built for hard times <laughs> It wasn't built for an easy time. It was built during the Civil War. There were 659,000 soldiers who died in the Civil War. That's the equivalent of 7,200,000 today. Our country was uh, this much worse crisis than this pandemic. And when Lincoln tried to, uh, to, to to ban his corpus, the court said, you, don't, you can't do that. You cannot do that. It doesn't matter how bad the crisis is. You cannot do it. It's the Constitution. It's the heart and soul of our country. Now, President Trump said, "Well, these bureaucrats came at him from every side, and they were all telling him he had to do that. He had the right instincts. He knew that he shouldn't close down the country, but he did it. He got rolled." I bureaucracy and I'm going to tell you a quick story. During oh, the, uh, the Missile Crisis, the XCOM committee, which was all the intelligence officials and military officials, uh, 11 of 13 I'm on there. My father was on there, so was Bob McNamara. So those are the exceptions. But all of the Doyens, the gurus, the, the, you know, the old grain men who were, you know, the Curtis LeMay, Louis Lencer, the generals from the Joint Chiefs. They all said, we got to go in and bomb the, the, the missile sites in Cuba, the 64 missile sites in Cuba. And my uncle said to him, well, wait a minute. What's going to happen? Who, who's on the gun? Are those Cubans or are those Russians? And they said, we don't know. And he said, well, if they're Russians and we kill Russians, it isn't Russia, then I'm going to have to go into Berlin. And they were like, oh, well, we don't think they'll do that. And my oh. uncle said, "I want to see the aerial photos and look at the photographs." And he said, "Who has on, on the Cuban side? Who has? Who gives permission to fire? Does it come from Russia? Does it come from Fidel? Does it come from the individual gun crews? Because if it comes from Fidel, he's going to fire. If it comes from the individual gun crews, then you're putting the fate of the world in the hands of the commanders. Sixty-four men. They didn't know." so he said we're not doing it and he did something else and all i'm saying is you need a president at this time in history who can stand up to his bureaucracy are owned by the industries i'm talking about you know nih and epa and cdc and fda and uh, the, the U and uh, dot uh, train track wreck would not have happened in east palestine except we have a captive agency at dot our food is terrible because the food companies and the pesticide companies own usda we're in constant wars because the military industrial complex the big contractors own cia now, I want to make this clear. I do not believe that everybody at the CIA is a better person. My, my daughter-in-law, Amber Willis, who is, is, who is one of the top officers on this campaign, spent her entire career as a clandestine agent for the CIA uh, as a spy in the weapons of mass destruction program in some of the most dangerous parts of the earth. And I have never met anybody with such courage. And that's how most of the 22,000 people at CIA are. They're people who are patriots, they're people who are good public servants, and they're people of enormous courage and idealism. And that's the same with most of our agencies. The problem is the people who end up rising in those agencies generally are people who are in the tank industry. And, and, uh, and that's how they get up there. And you know, one of the and that I can do, I think, better than any other political candidate is I know how to fix them, because I've spent so much time litigating and studying these agencies. Now, I I want to talk about one last... Uh, I, let me do two, two little subjects. <laughs> All right. Very, very quickly, I want to just talk about the chronic disease epidemic, because to me, Ari, this is the worst attack on middle class in this country, in the worst health care system in the United States of America. What do I mean by that? I mean that we spend more on health care by far than any other country, and we have the worst health outcomes. Uh, we have, we spend $4.3 trillion annually on health. trillion, about 84% of that goes to treating chronic disease. Now, why is that? Because America has the highest chronic disease burden in the world. And we didn't. We didn't always. In in 1940s, 50s and 60s, we had a really healthy population. We had only 6% of our people, of our citizens or children had chronic disease. By 1988, that became 12.8%, so it doubled. Today, by 2006, it was 54%. We have the sickest generation in American history. We have the sickest children on earth in this country. And by chronic disease, what do I mean? I mean obesity, but more importantly, um, neurological diseases, neurodevelopmental, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, ASD and autism. Autism went from um, one in every 10,000 people in my generation to one in every 34 kids today. Now, one of the talking points that the industry and their crooked legislative or regulators will say is, "Oh, well, we just started noticing it for the first time." Um, is like a train wreck, so it's an absurd. But, but more importantly, there is study after study after study that shows that this is not that this epidemic is, is not the result of changing diagnostic criteria. It is not the result of better recognition. It is an epidemic. And it's common sense because if it was changing diagnostic criteria, You'd see people my age with full blown autism, 69 years old. I have never seen somebody my age with full blown autism. I mean, stimming, toe walking, head banging, non verbal, non toilet train. And I've been around at the spear tip of people with intellectual disabilities my whole life. My aunt founded Special Olympics. I worked in it from when I was a kid. My cousin, my my dear cousin Anthony Shriver, is the founder of Best Bodies. This is in the DNA of my family. Hours working at Los it's harder in the Hudson Valley when I was a teenager. Uh, I just did I haven't seen it. Somebody my age who looks like that, and yet in my kids' class, schools, there are many, many children who, who look like that. And why aren't we asking the question what happened? Yeah. Congress said. And by the way, there's a report that came out a couple of weeks ago um, that shows the cost of autism alone. The American economy will be just of caring for people as, as this group now ages. It will be a trillion dollars a year by 2040. Oh, so the uh, Congress said to the EPA, tell us what year the and EPA is a captive agency, but it's captive by the oil, coal, and pesticide industry, not by pharma. So it actually came out with an honest study. And the EPA said it's a red line 1989.
2: Oh, well, something happened
3: in 1989. And we know that it is an environmental insult. It's gene cause dynamics. And the only thing is we just have to figure out what it is. There's a limited number of cul- culprits. Of, of chemical toxins that became ubiquitous around 1989 and and so you know that's that's something that nih is a 42 billion dollar budget and by the way it wasn't just those neurological disorders started and all these autoimmune diseases started if you're my age you never saw anybody with rheumatoid arthritis or juvenile diabetes when you were younger the allergic diseases, food allergies, peanut allergies, um, and eczema, anaphylaxis, which now are ubiquitous, are 27 percent of our, our school budgets are now going to special education. This is crippling to the middle class in this country. and we need to figure out what it is. And I can tell you this. I am the President of the United States, I am gonna end the chronic disease
2: epidemic in this country. And
3: if I, I, I have not significantly dropped, a level of chronic disease in our children By the end of my first term, I do not want you to re-elect me. Now, I'm going to talk about one last subject, and it's a, it's a big one, so settle down. Uh, I, I want to talk about the war in Ukraine. And, we need to have a national conversation about this war. We need have, I'm sure we need to have a mature conversation that allows for nuance and that allows for complexity and we need to do it respectfully. We can't be telling one side that they're Nazis and the other side that they love Putin. Everybody in this country loves our country. And we we have to respect differences of opinion and we have to respect the people's capacity to ask questions. And, um, you know, some of the issues that we need to talk about is number one, is the, is this war in the U.S. national interest? We just need to isolate that question. It is it in the U.S. national interest? And there are, some of the leading panjarams of uh, most respected people and of of our national diplomats, let's say, Henry Kissinger, Jack Matlock, Larry Wilkinson, who's Colin Powell's chief of staff, they all have said definitively, if you just want to ask, is it in our national interest, it is not. It's not in our national interest to push Russia closer to China. That is the cataclysm. Number two, it's not in our national interest to do something that could involve us in a nuclear change with a country that has more nuclear weapons than us. <laughs> now, having said that, I'm going to say that we are in the Ukraine for all the right reasons. We are there because we are a good people. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln said America is a great nation because we're a good nation. And we continue to be a good people. And we are there because of our compassion. The Ukrainian people who have been brutalized, who have been illegally invaded, and have shown extraordinary valor and courage defending their country and defending their families and their beliefs and their liberties and their independence, things that Americans have in My own son, Connor, I'm very, very proud that Connor joined the Foreign Legion and fought in the Ukraine and during the Kharkiv offensive as a machine gunner for a special forces group. But I think that we need to know, as Americans, that we have a right to know what is our government's chief objective in this war. Oh, now, we were told initially that the objective was humanitarian. And that is a good reason to be there,
2: a humanitarian.
3: What that means is trying to end the bloodshed and minimize it as much as possible. But in recent times, President Biden said that one of our objectives, at least, is regime change of Vladimir Putin, and this is the same strategy that did not work well for us in Iraq. And it's many of the same people who are around the neocons, who are around uh, uh, President Biden, who have been talking about that for a long time and engaged in uh, geopolitical machinations in the ukraine since 2014. and then uh president biden's secretary of defense lloyd austin validated president biden's statement by saying our objective in the ukraine is to exhaust and degrade the Russian army so they're incapable of having battles anywhere else in the world. Now, and indeed, many of the steps that we've taken in the Ukraine have seemed to indicate that our interest is in prolonging the war rather than shortening it. So if those are our objectives, to have regime change and exhaust the Russians. That is completely antithetical to a humanitarian mission. If, if, if we are there for a humanitarian mission, it means to reduce bloodshed and bring an end to the war quickly. If we're there to exhaust the Russians or regime change, then it doesn't mean that Ukraine is just a pawn in a geopolitical battle between two great superpowers and that our strategy is to is to put the flower of ukrainian youth into an apple of death in order to exhaust russia and if that's true then we need to know about it if it's not true then we need a pretty good discussion with the President and the Secretary of Defense and others to tell us exactly what are we doing there. And I want to talk just a little about some of the cause of the war. We've now committed $113 billion to the Ukraine for, for reference, the entire budget of uh, EPA is uh, 12 billion. The budget of CEC is 11 billion. We have 57% of Americans, we have a crisis here. We have a war on the poor. 57% of Americans cannot put their hand on a $1,000 if they have an emergency. One what? quarter of Americans are hungry. With 1.5 million veterans, Living below the poverty line, we have 33,000 veterans who are homeless. We have 27 veterans, 23 veterans a day, who are killing themselves. The war on core is a blood war. Yep. I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine, an old friend, Keith Amato. Can you stand? Thank you. Thank you. and keith is a commercial fisherman out of provincetown well um and occasionally shinnecock and Ice up off the long island um, and we we have a uh, we've known each other for many many years we have a, a weekly ritual where keith discovered years ago that at whole foods drops the price of oysters on Friday, to one dollar. This is an ad for Whole Foods. So for $1, he knows this because his son, his son-in-law actually owns the wealthy oyster bed where the oysters come from. Oh, so every Friday Keith goes and picks up thirty oysters, um, brings them to the house, and when I pay the oysters. He shucks them. He makes the minion sauce, Indian egg We eat them, and I. Uh, and we have an amazing friendship and we're and are very very close uh, but keith is on disability and does not allow him to work anymore and he has been surviving on food stamps and his on on march 1st he got a recorded telephone call from the government saying that his food stamps allocation is going to be dropped next month from $280 a month to $25. 30 million Americans got that phone call. 30 million Americans. The Same month, the government announced that it is going to drop Medicare for up to 15 million Americans. The same month, the government announced that it is printing 300 billion extra dollars to pay off the silicon valley bank to bail it out and yep. we announced the biden administration announced 750 additional millions of dollars that we're going to send to the ukraine yep. so we have money for wars yep. and we have money for bail- b- bankers that need bailouts
2: yep.
3: but what happens to the american people when they are on hard times shouldn't we have compassion for them okay so let's look at some math we're borrowing 6 billion dollars a day our government that's the on our debt, six billion, we're borrowing it mainly from the Chinese and Japanese. In order to pay for the wars and the bailouts and the lockdowns. Now the wars in Iraq and after its aftermath cost us eight trillion dollars. Eight trillion. We spent 16 trillion on the lockdown. That's 24 trillion dollars. Does anybody wonder why we don't have a middle class in this country anymore? So we, how do we get this money? Well, we borrowing it as fast as we can from the Japanese and the Chinese, which is not a good thing. But the other thing is we're just printing it between 1900 and 2008, we printed a trillion dollars. That was all the money we printed in a century. Between 2008 and today, we've printed 10 trillion, 10 centuries worth of wealth to pay for bailouts and lockdowns is lending money and what happens to what how does that pay off through inflation and inflation is a tax on the poor oh keith keith had his his food stamp checks uh, sh- dropped to 25 dollars. huge going shopping on 25 dollars uh, you, you, uh, you'd be crazy to think that Is going to say, are you going to survive a week on $25 a day? Oh, he's spending $25 on food. They got his food stamps to pay the inflation. His food has doubled over the past two years. And for basic foodstuffs like chicken, dairy, and milk, it's gone up 78%. We are starving American people. And we are cutting them off from the from the kind of that we should be doing. Instead, spending on being the policeman of the world. Okay. We have 800 bases around the world now. We have uh, we spend 800 billion dollars, 880 billion dollars a year on our military. We were supposed to get a piece of it. After the Soviet Union collapsed, we were supposed to go from 6 billion to 2 billion. That was a peace dividend. And then we were going to spend the rest, bring it home, and build schools and infrastructure. Instead, we've made up a bunch of foreign enemies and different enemies and things that we got to do to spend more money. The military industrial complex and the intelligence agencies are telling us that. Instead of having to, we release it to 8.8. Oh, that's where we are. This is this is what's happening. You know, if you go back to the beginning of our history, our f- f- founders made so many clear warnings against Americans getting involved in foreign wars because they said um, it is an trying to be an imperium abroad is going to destroy democracy. at all. It, it when it turns into an garrison state, a national security state. And a surveillance state. They said it's, and the, the two are inconsistent. You cannot be an imperial nation abroad and a democracy at home. And um, my, uh, and, and Quentin Adams really spoke for all of the framers when he said America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. It is it's something we cannot afford to do in our country. My grandfather, Joseph Kennedy, said, well, we, should, we, we need to build fortress, fortress America. We need to arm ourselves to the teeth at home and, then, and make ourselves too expensive to conquer and then build our economy because the economy is the source of strength, not bullets and weapons. It's having a strong economy, and a strong middle class. White <laughs> right, right, Eisenhower warned against military-industrial complex, it, it short democracy. My father died in his campaign against the Vietnam War. Uh, Martin Luther King wrote with the Civil Rights Movement on Vietnam, and he said, this has got to be our priority. Because you don't, you're not being that there is a direct link between poverty at home and war, poverty and violence, and oppression at home and war abroad. You cannot separate them. As long as we're making war, as long as our major exports are weapons and war, we will never have a middle class in this country. And my uncle, President Kennedy, uh, uh, told his friend Ben Bradley, he said, uh, uh, Bradley asked him, what do you want in your gravestone? What's your epithet? And he said he kept the peace. That's what he wanted. He said the principal job of every president of the United States was to keep our country out of war, and he wow. and doing that. And instead, he started investing the Kennedy Milk Program, Alliance for Pro- Progress, the um, USAID to rebuild the middle, to build middle classes in countries so that they could enjoy democracy. He started the Peace Corps because he said he wanted foreigners to know Americans, not by you know, military uniforms, but by people who came in their communities to help him. And you know, it's very, very difficult to, to, to fairly judge the, who the best presidents in our history were. You know, uh, Historians take polls of each other, take polls of the public to try to figure who's the best. But there is one objective merit metric, and that is at least Foreign policy. Which president has the most statues to him abroad, most universities named after him, most hospitals named after him, most roads and boulevards and avenues? Nobody comes close to college of Kennedy. So, and, that, and that is a if people love our country, that's good for our economy and it's good for our security. And that's what we had with my uncle. We had a, we had a president who made it. Love. My uncle he used to say that he used to love the fact that there were Africans who were naming their children Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln, but they weren't naming them Marx and Lenin. He used to say that. I think probably the proudest thing, if he could know all the memorials to him one he would be proud of is the tens of thousands of African children. I've met many of them in my lifetime, and Latin American children and Asian and Mideastern children who are named Kennedy. Yes. And I'm going to tell you this, you know, President Bush my uncle came into office two months later. He was fighting his intelligence apparatus in his military because they wanted to invade uh, and they wanted to go and do the Bay of Pigs. He was totally against it, and he let them roll over him. And in the middle of the Bay of Pigs, he realized they were lying to him. And he realized the function of the intelligence agencies had become to provide the military industrial complex with Hudson pipeline of war. And he came out during the middle of the night during the Bay of Pigs catastrophe, and he said, oh, I want to take the CIA. Alan Dulles had lied to him. Charles Cabal, Richard Bissell, Louis Lemitzer. Um, John, uh, Curtis LeMay had all lied to him through their teeth. He said, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. Um, you know, George, George W. Bush had the same problem. George W. Bush has the worst mistake he made for the president was listening to CIA director George, at the time it was a slam dunk that uh, Saddam Hussein had uh, was a mass destruction. And so the neocons and CIA got to go into Iraq and throw out and do regime change and and we got not Now we've spent eight trillion dollars. And what do we get for that eight trillion? Nothing. Worse than nothing. Iraq is now much worse off than it was when we went in there. They, we killed more Iraqis than Saddam Hussein ever did. We may have killed a million Iraqis, and nobody knows the number. But it is it is an incoherent country today with uh, where Shia death squads are fighting with Sunni death squads in the street. The government is corrupt, the police are corrupt. We created ISIS. We drove 2 million refugees up into Europe. They destabilized democracy for a generation in Europe. They caused Brexit. This is the cost of the Iraq War, $8 trillion there, $16 trillion for the lockdowns, $24 trillion, nothing to show except a devastated middle class in the United States of America. And we need to put an end to that. Uh, they, you know, our strategy in this country has been to use military weapons to project power, military force to project power around the world. And that's how our strategy to control the world. The Chinese did something different. They adopted my uncle's philosophy and strategy, which is they, the eight trillion, we were spending eight trillion bombing bridges, ports, roads, and hospitals. They were spending eight trillion building bridges, roads, ports, and hospitals. And they are now displacing us as trade partners. Most of the African nations, Atlanta, Brazil, just switched Chinese currency away from the dollar. Saudi Arabia just switched away from the dollar. Oh, these are.
2: (laughs) Is that the?
3: Okay, we're okay. I'm being told by Gavin De Becker that there is no emergency that affects us. All right, let me. I'm gonna finish up.
2: I'm gonna finish up. I'm wow. gonna finish.
3: Shut up. That's in a I um, No, you're doing great. So they, so the Chinese, so we've now watched, uh, they- <laughs>
2: oh. then it's such awesome.
3: Uh, okay. Nice try.
2: Yes, I yeah. oh, can I like him. Yeah. Oh, he's still the green.
3: Oh, Chinese are being nice guys. Have earn goodwill in these countries. Now, the Brazil and Pakistan are now switching Chinese currency. From the, you know what that's going to cost our country if we no longer have the, the dominating, uh, car, the universal currency, 750 billion a year mm. uh, as one of these costs of these continual wars that we have to examine.
2: Mm.
3: And so the Saudi Arabia had last month signed a peace deal with Iran, which is great. But Saudi Arabia was our biggest investment. They are our number one ally. The whole key to US strategy was called the Shia Crescent. Saudi Arabia would be the keystone, and then we'd have Abiy and Qatar and Oman and the Amrits and Lebanon all the way up Syria on both sides, creating a bulwark against, uh, and Iraq, of course, creating a bulwark against uh, Iranian expansion, which was our key objective in the Mideast. Well, guess what? The Chinese just brokered peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Our entire policy has collapsed. We no longer have a coherent foreign policy and Iraq, I mean, they, um, Mohammed bin Salam said not only this, two weeks ago. He lowered oil production during a US recession. It was like a, a slap in the United States' face. And then he said it out loud three days ago. We don't care what the United States thinks anymore. So we've put trillions and trillions of dollars into that those nations. This strategy, the entire American Empire just folded. Iran, Iraq which we went to war of, is now a proxy state of Iran. Our entire strategy in the Mideast has utterly collapsed and our economy is gonna follow if we don't do something fast. And I'm gonna bring the troops off and I am going to start, I'm gonna close the bases, and I'm gonna start investing in the United States middle class in our country and I'm gonna make us an exemplary democracy again. I wanna say one full fun thing. Which is, I gotta put my cards on the table. I am not I'm not an ideal presidential candidate for, for normal times. I I'm not one of these people who've spent their life saying I gotta be really careful because one day I'm gonna be in the White House. <laughs> I actually did the opposite of that. Uh, and I have had a very, very high-risk life and a lot of fun, but I, uh, I, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't careful. I mean, you know, issues to attach myself to. And um, anybody who looks at those issues will not say, oh, this guy is just trying to get into the White House. He's <laughs> uh, trying to get myself out of all my friendships and uh, my political party and everything else oh um yeah, i uh, i i had a, I i don't remember and it lasted until my early 60s <laughs> and i told my wife the other day i said oh, i got so many skeletons in my closet that if they could vote i could be king of the world <laughs> uh, normal- normal circumstances would not do this. Uh, but these are not normal circumstances. I'm watching my country being stolen from me. And, and I owe it to my children, to my family, and my legacy. I don't want you know, the Democratic Party to be the part of fear, and and war, and censorship. <laughs> We, we have to be more than just neocons with woke bobbleheads. We need, we need you know, we need to stand up to corporations. We need to stand against war. We need to um, we need to put our children first. We need to stop listening to the large corporation. In many ways, I, and, and that's what a Kennedy Democrat is. And we need to bring this party back to the party of FDR, of JFK, Or if Martin Luther King and and those values. Um,
2: In in many ways,
3: I have spent my lifetime preparing for this office because I've spent so much time suing these, uh, uh, you know, the agents. I know the agencies. I know, you know how NIH works, how CDC works, how FDA works, EPA. And Michael Baum who's sitting here in the front rows. My law partner was one of the lead attorneys with uh, with Brent Wisner on the, you know, on our Monsanto case. Um. One. We got the Monsanto papers, we realized that we found emails that showed that the head of the pesticide division, of the EPA, was secretly working for Monsanto for forever. And um, and and that's true in all of these agencies and most politicians, when they come in, um, they want to, you know, they seriously want to fix the agencies. They want to fix the government. They want to drain the swamp. But They get in there and they don't. They don't know what to do with these sprawling bureaucracies, 30,000, 40,000 people and their own culture and their own history and people in their career, and it's really hard to change that. So rather than do that, they concentrate on another agenda and they put somebody safe to run that agency, you know, uh, President uh, Trump brought uh, Scott Godley then he took a, President Trump took a million dollars from Pfizer and then appointed a guy eventually from Pfizer Bobby so he was a business partner of Pfizer to run the agency and then he of course made 88 billion dollars for Pfizer on one vaccine and then left to join Pfizer's board that's not draining the swamp that is the swamp and President, President Biden is the same thing. I look. I know Pete Buttigieg. I like Pete Buttigieg. He's a friend of my family. I, my son uh, campaigned for him. Was part of his campaign last time around. So, and I, you know, I, I can, but I, know I can, I can tell you with an almost certainty that he did not go to DOT saying, you know, god darn it, I'm going to fix the railroads and I'm going to end the corruption. Um, Most of these people go in because they're safe and they're going to be good to talk to us on Sunday morning, but they don't really want to go in and they don't know how to go in and really make big changes in those agencies that can make waves and maybe cause problems with the president. So they get somebody safe. Ralph Reed used to describe those people. He said they were people who get the job. And uh, I, you know, I get the joke. But I don't think it's funny. And uh, I'm, not. I'm, not safe. No, I'm not safe. The vested interests aren't safe. My job is to keep you safe, and that's what I'm gonna do. My dad. But, Whenever we travel, my father would take us to um, the Indian reservations, wherever we landed. We'd go, whether we were in Utah or New Mexico, go to a um, Navajo reservation, or we'd go with, um, up to New York to the Mohawk reservation. All around the country, he would always, when we got to the airport, he would want to go there. Um, and he'd take us there. He, he, he loved going to Appalachia. His favorite place in the world was Bedford, Ives. One of the poorest neighborhoods I was on a restoration board for twenty years. Um, he would take us to Harlem when we were kids, little kids. He would put us or to Appalachia, to the, the, to the white mining communities in Appalachia. He would put us in a stage wagon and he would drive us to the Southeast Washington and we would go to the playgrounds there and talk to people. And my father would say to us, my father, when he came back one time from the Delta, he said, we were all at the dinner table when he came in. And I was in a paper that was smaller than the dining room. There were two families living there and the, the children get one meal a day. And when you get older, I want you to help those people. And when we would go into Southeast Washington or Appalachia, he would say, yes, these are your people. These are Kennedy people. He said, yeah, other people, the, the big shots, the corporations, the millionaires don't need the Kennedys. They have lobbyists, they have PR firms, they have lawyers. And he said, these are your people, and these are the people you need to spend your life helping. And I'm president, president of those people. You're gonna take back this country. You give me a piece of ground and a sword, and I am gonna take back this country with your help, the help of all the homeless Republicans, the Democrats and Independents For Americans first.
2: oh boy it's over ah, oh, 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 okay that was quite informative let me turn it off good night um, tr- tranquility still here